This is Real People in the Psychotherapist's Chair with Jerry Pives on RCR, Reality Check Radio. So it's my enormous pleasure and privilege to invite René de Monchy into the Psychotherapist's Chair. René, welcome and thank you for um, being willing to uh, put yourself into the Psychotherapist's Chair. Thank you. That is a great honor. And I think how you came to this idea and then the working it out in the format is really very interesting because I'm also a psychotherapist, but as you may know, but somewhat later in my life. Well, let's kick off with that and give the listeners a little bit of background as to who you are. And one way to do that might be for us to start off with your current life and work right now, today. Like, what is your week or your day? And give the listeners a flavor of what your life consists of at the moment, who you live with, where you live. Um, You don't have to give all the details, but just roughly what area you live. Well, so my name is René, René de Monchy, to make it more complicated because it's French. My funny accent is from Holland, and I've been here in New Zealand about 50 years now, or 48 years. I live in in Tauranga, married my second marriage with Elisabeth von Tobel, who is a eurythmist as well as a psychotherapist. She works mainly in psychotherapy as well. And we work in the same clinic, the so-called life clinic. Uh, I'm the only doctor there, but there's a chiropractor. uh, There's two homeopaths working there and us. And it's a very holistic practice. And that was also a bit of a lifeline, as it were, because I'm also working in the hospital or in the mental health services in Tauranga, working at the moment in the drug and alcohol service, where I work three days a week. And alternatively, I go then every two weeks to Wakatani to do a day there. And so that is a part of psychiatry that's actually very interesting. But the I was mandated out uh, on the 16th of November 21, Uh, from the one moment to the other, really, within a quarter of an hour. And then, so I couldn't work there, but I decided to simply continue working in the life clinic as I had done before, because I had been a doctor now for for a very long time. This year is my 50th year that I'm a doctor. And so I, I haven't changed anything, but the world around me completely changed. And everything that was normal practice wasn't anymore. But I thought I'm not going to to fall for that. So, yes, I couldn't work in the public system, but I simply kept on working under the radar in um, in the life clinic. And that is a very supportive environment, supportive people too. So that's what I do at the moment. And Fridays... I work in the garden. I try to work in the garden. And we work in Tauranga. We've got a lovely house and a reasonably large section. And uh, Elizabeth is the the flower girl. And I have got a new hobby in growing vegetables, etc. in the last two years. And that is really fun to be with your hands in the warm soil and converse with the worms and the the blackbirds who sit waiting for me to get these worms free so that they can gobble them up is just something so primary in life. 
And that's what I like. I've had for a very long time uh, have been meditating. And so my inner life has been active for a long time. But now that I'm a bit older, I'm 78, it is as if you change a bit too, that although you're outwardly very active, and I am, you tend to become even more philosophical and thinking. And so when when working on the earth, and to you, you feel this oneness more directly than than otherwise. Uh, it's interesting. Elizabeth and I were reading this morning. We read every morning, usually very early uh, in the weekends, a bit later. But normally, from about five to six, we have our first coffee and we read and we read each other books and we read then also lectures of Steiner's and this interesting part that that we talked about this morning already, for instance, talking about the human hair, we talk about a hair, you know, a hair. There is actually nothing like a hair. A hair is only as a hair as long as it's part of the body. And so um, a plant is only plant as long as it's part of the earth. And that brought us to what is the human being? actually where is his home and of course then you come straight into the the spiritual realm is that is where we actually live and we 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 are here for a time on this earth so it's interesting how everything that you experience can bring you in that more direct contact with what the african call ubuntu and uh, when i worked in a mission hospital in africa the the Zimbabwean people, the Shona people, they call it Mwari. He or what is undefined and yet into every tiniest detail of existence. And I, I like that because that's exactly how I also see the, the sense of Christ, actually, and of whole religion. It's everywhere. It is just, it is. And that's in the Shona word Mwari, this undefined yet definitely defined, if you like, at the same time. And I've come more and more to the conclusion that that is what with everything is uh, that whole totality. You can put that into little bits and fragments and you can look at it under a microscope, but you have the same wonder and admiration when you do that as when you see a child playing with a ball, you know, or an old woman smiling to an old man who both hardly can walk. That's what I mean. Right from the off, Rene, I'm just getting, uh, I mean, we've never met, so I'm getting a powerful sense of the really profound spiritual perspective that you have on everything, that it's impossible to, in many ways, think of things as separate, but in fact, for you, there's a unifying spiritual kind of um, container almost that holds everything in your frame of reference. Uh, would that be an accurate assessment to make? Yes, yes. I I am absolutely, I'm, and it's not a question of knowledge, actually. This is interesting. It's a question of knowing, and I can talk briefly about that. But when I was very young, about four or five, I was very ill and had, was between life and death for a while. 
And this was in the late 40s. So they didn't really have the same techniques as we have now. And I was operated. But I had this, this very clear near-death experience of knowing that whatever we see and touch and feel, that is actually a dream. The reality is behind that. So if I, how can I say that? You see that I'm, I'm holding my cup here. I'm drinking my coffee. And this cup is, is a normal cup, and it's got an, an, a pattern in it. So you say, well, this is reality. It's made of things. Um, it has been sculptured. It has been fired. It has been glazed, etc. So a cup is this. Yes. But there was also, be, long before this came, there was a man or a woman who thought, I actually want to make a cup. I want to, I want to make something different. And there was nothing material there. But gradually, from that, that thought, from that visualization of how can I do that? What can I do? Finally, there came, there came this cup as the outer manifestation of that whole process that starts really in the imaginary, if you call spiritual realm, and gets more frozen into matter gradually. And that is how I see everything. So um, a piece of music is less frozen than this cup, but it is similar. It is also substance. And so the human being, I can say, well, Jerry is one meter 78 tall. He weighs 85 kilograms. His body temperature is this or that and the other. And I can even do a CT scan. I can do know more about Jerry than he himself knows, as it were. But that is only the, the very superficial, very small layer of actually who Jerry is. So we, we are living in this dimension of space and time for a while. And in order to develop further in our total being, and that total being is, of course, that what we strive for, and as I said, the, the, we are a spiritual being among a whole lot of spiritual beings, billions. The essential spiritual beings that you will find in, in goodness, love, compassion, service, all these sort of things. Also beings like jealousy, greed, control, I do believe that they are actually also beings. So the more I can actually live in conjunction in my life with goodness and gratitude and loving and service, and this sounds perhaps a bit eerie-feary, but it isn't actually, means that not only do I enlarge my own sense of that, but also I help that being to grow in the world, to actually expand in the whole of the universe. Because I believe that anything we do is a question of eventually freedom. We are given that freedom. And the challenges that we have in life of what you can call opposing forces or what we see at the moment, really this control to squeeze us 
into robotic automatons, um, not able to, to think and decide for itself. That is really dehumanizing us. And you can ask yourself, why is that? Because there is a reason for that too, because that there is no goodness without badness, just like there is no matter without spirit. And so we, it helps us in the whole of the evolution of consciousness over the thousands of years, where we have come to this point of, it is really up to us, not onto anybody's authority, but unto us as individual human beings, in the first place to be aware, and with awareness comes also that freedom to choice and take the consequences of what it is. So when this whole COVID business, for instance, it became, it was quite clear to me right from the beginning that this was an attack onto the human being and the human consciousness and the human awareness to enslave for some principle that actually came out to be quite corrupt. And most people have fallen for that. And it is logical that they fall for that because it is so well presented and so incredibly strong, but it, it makes us inhuman. Well, I could not agree more. I've come in a probably slightly different route, but I've come to the same analysis of the situation that what we have is an attack on our humanity. And I think, you know, it is reconnecting what, what makes humans so incredibly different uh, from machines, of course, is our emotional warmth, our ability to connect with each other and to give reassurance and sustenance and indeed life itself to each other. And that we give each other life when we give, when we give attention, when we give stimulus, when we give discussions like these, we're giving a form of life to each other. And so I absolutely am with you on this. I'm fascinated by your journey and I want to go back to that opening moment with that four or five-year-old experience that changed your perception, that near-death experience that kind of set you off at the early age of five, seeing things in a very different way. So I was born straight after the war. In fact, conceived probably around about the day of the liberation of our little town. And I grew up in actually a very loving family. And, and there was a lot of responsibility and a lot of freedom at the same time. And so there was also in the after war years where you were actually very grateful for being alive. And the next door to our house was an, an, uh, actually two places where there were no houses. They had been bombed out. And that was where we played as children. And gradually the country was building itself up again. But so you had less the idea that things were, you didn't take them so much for granted, I suppose, and it was a bit simpler. And I grew up with that. So it was always stimulated to think. And then I was very fortunate in my teenage years to go to the smallest state grammar school, actually in Holland. There was 160 pupils. And with the teachers, we really, we engaged in life at those times. It was also at the middle of the Cold War, don't forget that. And I was born close to the German border. 
So actually, the east zone was closer than Rotterdam to where I lived in the western part of Holland. So you you were aware of that. And I hitchhiked through Europe. You could still do that in those late 50s and 60s, always with a sense of, yes, I can trust. When I was 16, I went as a deckhand on a freighter to America and then a bit later in Canada as a lumberjack. So I've always had this wish to to explore both outwardly and inwardly. So I'm actually, I mean, it might sound from all this as if we're just very eerie-fairy sort of thing, but I'm actually pretty much on this earth and standing here quite firmly. And I love that. But if I would die wow. tomorrow, that's fine too. I mean, I, I have, as Jung said, as soon as you have integrated death into your life, you can start to live. And that's true. But I am gravely concerned about what happens in this world. Um, and of course, I look at that from a medical point of view. And with these so-called vaccinations and changing via the mRNAs to actually what is now clearly shown, changing our, our DNA structure, that is something that hasn't happened in the past. So the you've always had tendencies to bring the human being away from his path. But now to do it with these means that our own immune system, psychoneurobiological immunity that incorporates everything is changed in a gene manipulation way, that is, that's new. And that is really, I think that is actually evil. It is all in the name of control, or it's not in the name of control, but it is actually control. And so there is some plan behind that, that everything is exactly the same in the whole world, making us all the same, eating the same things at McDonald's, watching the same television programs, becoming the same personas rather than egos as really inner selves. That is the attack. And so um, I've come a bit to the conclusion that is different, but that all these things are almost as a reaction to the human being developing and going over a threshold, both individually and as a whole society, over a threshold where the what used to be seen as really quite dividing the, the physical and the spiritual world, that actually seeing that and after that time that I was between life and death, I've always been having deja vus and I still have those a lot. So that's simply, I'm not clairvoyant, but it is simply that it is an awareness. And I think more and more people are going over that threshold. You know, meditation is something that so many people do. And 30 years ago, when you thought about that, you thought about Tibetan monks doing that. And people are getting over that threshold, meaning over that threshold of becoming more aware, more knowing, and therefore actually freer. And the, the powers that be, the earthly physical powers, that is the last that they want to see. They want to prevent that at all costs. 
And so I have a feeling that a lot of these vicious measures in all sense in the way of government controls and still based on a 19th century dualistic principle from us and them, employer, employee, government, parliament, uh, all of that time is actually past, but we're still stuck with it. And there are very strong forces that want it at all costs to prevent us from waking up. Now, this was a long monologue. Uh, Listen, keep them coming, Rene. I could sit and listen to you for so long. I I love what you say. Um, I was a history teacher initially back in the day, and it's been the historical exploration of people's lives that has actually interested me a great deal, the roots of where our influences come from. And while we're on that, I'm going to try and pin you down a little bit more to your personal life. This is very personal. Of course it is what you're describing. But I just wonder... What do you know about your name? I mean, this French name, living in Holland, uh, born in Holland. What do you know about the roots of your family? Do you have any um, idea of where they all come from? Yes, absolutely. Huguenot family. And that's interesting. This is right from the beginning, genealogically, too. The fight for freedom. So being Protestants in France... And Henry IV had given the freedom of, of religion. And then after that, I think it was Louis XIV who recanted that and said, no, everybody must become Catholic. So you had then the Huguenots who then uh, went quite a few to Prussia, quite a few to Holland. And that's where my family is. So that was in the 17th century. And actually you find they- a lot of French names also in South Africa. And because then they came, went from Holland to South Africa and started the whole wine culture there, etc. It would be interesting. The slaughter of the Huguenots uh, is one of the most horrific crimes in the history of France, actually. Um, mm-hmm. And the escape from that persecution is something that presumably your ancestors would have experienced. They would have escaped from that. They would have yeah. travelled to Holland had to set up in a different culture, a different country. Um, heaven alone knows what trials and tribulations your ancestors must have gone through just to establish themselves in Holland. The, one was the, was also René de Monchy. He was an old uncle of mine. He was the burgomaster, the mayor of The Hague, and The Hague was the residence. And on 10th of May, the Germans came into the country for occupation in 1940. And immediately he spoke out. He said, you can never, never work, never collaborate with these people who just under false pretenses take over the land. And of course, he was straight imprisoned and all of that. But that was another part that you will always see that in your life, you come to a point where you have to make a choice. And that you... Who are you going to be? And I remember somebody very close to me at the time. She said, look, better a living coward than a dead hero. And I've never subscribed to that because I I believe in the continuity of life. And I believe that there is a purpose. And for us to 
men know thyself, to try to get to know your purpose, that gives strength in you for what is happening at the moment. And I'm involved in the New Zealand doctors speaking out of science and, and, and New Zealand rising and all of those things that you know about. This is actually, to put it in military terms, this is a hill that I'm prepared to die on. Because I feel that we're in such dire straits and so many people are actually waking up in the world globally by simply getting in touch with yourself. Does this actually feel right? And in every aspect to get finer tunes tuned within yourself to listen to that voice. And it will tell you because that is, that is your inter eternal self. So anyhow, then I, I grew up there and it was good. And then I studied medicine. It was actually Albert Schweitzer who became my idol when I was 12. And my uncle made a big sculpture in bronze of his and it took him two years. And I read and wanted to know as much as I could about this person who has got science, art and religion, these three major aspects of the human being in himself. And he started his little hospital in Africa. And that's, I knew then, and I actually want to become a doctor and want to go to Africa. And I was 50 when that finally happened. After first a few years beforehand, um, hitchhiking and walking through Southern Africa. So I was there for four years, four and a half years. And that was also hard because it was being on yourself and I was long separated and divorced, but not understood by family and by, by the normal way of, of civilian thinking. That was really hard. So I then from 55 started to do psychiatry. And from 62, I I've been a, a psychiatrist now. There was a very big gap there between studying in medicine and making it to Africa to fulfill that boyhood dream at the age of 12 to fulfilling yeah. it. What happened in, in the intervening years? I'm interested in, in what got in the way or, or not even got in the way. What just happened in your life between qualifying as a medical doctor and getting to Africa? Well, I, I trained for Africa, so also did surgery and obstetrics as well as diploma in tropical medicine. Um, then I married and my then father-in-law was dead against us going to Africa and that had something to do with coming here but those are the outer circumstances of immigrating in 75 to New Zealand to Hawke's Bay where there was one anthroposophical doctor that was Dr. Friedlander and I got so frustrated with not being able to to treat a patient because of my way of thinking, my medical way of thinking. And I I phoned him and then we got, got in contact and we studied together. He worked at Hohepa. He was the doctor of Hohepa, uh, the Center for Disabled People. And we studied a lot together. And I would phone him really several times a day, say, Ken, I got this child with earache. Ken, I got this person, this woman who was having very heavy periods. I got this whatever. And he would tell me which remedies there were. And so that's 
where my my anthroposophical as well as conventional practice really started. So the the outer paths there are things, but inwardly I think it had very much to do with encountering anthroposophy, and I needed to be completely fresh on that, not not to have any family ties or cultural ties with it, so that I could really. I'd always had a very strong esoteric Christian sense. Not Christianity and the little church that we had was was all about freedom and consciousness, actually. It was nothing like hell and condemnation or anything. It was what I learned about Jung and Buddha. And, and <laughs> as Elizabeth had gone and done some Vipassana trainings, I went there too. So then gradually you pick from all sides what comes on your path because there is no coincidence. Whatever comes on my path asks simply for me to be aware, nothing more. And then to choose from that awareness, am I going to do something about it? Am I going to not do anything? Am I going to... Whatever, but it means that you, through an awareness of what comes on your path, you make a decision and you take the consequences of what what you do. And also, as I always said to my children, when you go with the flow, you won't get there. If you really want to get to know who you are and what life is about, you have to swim upstream. If you want to go to the source, and it's going to be hard like the salmon swimming up there. He, and I was in Canada, as I said, and, and worked there. The, the salmon right in the upper Fraser River near Alaska, they swim right upstream. They don't eat since leaving the, the Pacific Ocean, and they discolor. And by the time they get hundreds of kilometers up further, they spawn and die. So this incredible strength in life, really, these etheric forces, and we have those as well. We have those, and with these etheric forces, we can think, wounds can heal, we can overcome actually almost everything. As long as we see that in the whole framework of that self and higher self and not just a manifestation, that's why we go wrong. Say what you mean about not just a manifestation, so I can understand fully. Well, you know the what I said about the cup, but the, the same is with human beings. You are far more than this persona that that you are in this in this life, and you are you breathe your air that comes in first and goes through your lungs, then goes via your heart and your circulation into the finest blood vessels where it comes to silence and then it gives off the oxygen and from there it takes in the carbon dioxide but it also takes in in all the tissues that it goes through it it takes in a part of you then it goes back to the lungs and it breathes out and it doesn't breathe out just the nitrogen, this carbon dioxide and a bit less oxygen. No, it also breathes out you, that very fine part that you have actually are breathing out into the world and each one of us. And what a gift we actually give 
So this whole coming back to Ubuntu, this whole part that 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 we are part of, but it also asks us not to be nice and eerie fairy about it, but to to be very clear and say no, I'm not prepared to do this. And that's that's at the point where we are. I think there is a great price to pay for conformity. Not clearly, not in the beginning. Yeah. Because conformity gives you the pseudo-securities. It gives you all those sort of things, but they're exe-pseudo. But it will never give you freedom. The price to pay for conformity, I just came to that actually this morning, is enslavement. Yes. And human being is, is born to be free. Also, if you want that in biblical terms. Uh, Jesus sets you free. Yes. Well, well, I'm afraid we're having a very superficial conversation here with Dr. René de Monchy about, <laughs> about this and that. Um, I don't believe we've mentioned real estate once, and I don't believe we've mentioned um, what our possessions are or all the material, the stuff of life that people talk about. I am interested in your perception that there is a great awakening going on. And I would also say there's a great falling asleep going on. What do you think about that? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And the stakes are high now. The stakes were probably less high in the past. And that is for the waking up, the challenge needs to be much bigger, apparently. And that is sad. That is, it's really sad. But that's how it is. And I think... In the continuity of life, there is always hope, and there is there's the being of love to help us with us, even if the consequences are dire. And I think helping a fellow human being, uh, literally brothers and sisters, not not literally brothers and sisters, but uh, human fellow human beings who are suffering, um, we're all in the same boat. And as I just read yesterday, we're all. We're not in the same boat, actually, but we're in the same storm. Some are in a boat, some a canoe, and some people will drown. But we're here to help the people who come on our path, who are who are suffering. And we are our brother's keeper. I, I really feel that. I want to know from you, Rene, what would you say was the toughest moment in your life? And how did you get out of it? So one of the, the crisis situations in my life was when I was 37 and being overseas, working in an anthroposophical clinic. And there came a real big per personal crisis that later led to the dissolution of my, my marriage. And the idea in that, that I had actually fallen out of paradise. It was really interesting that, I don't know if you heard of Lievergoed, Professor Lievergoed, very wonderful man in Holland. And he said, Rene, you are just on your second moon node, 37 years and two months. And so that's when the constellation is uh, almost identical to at birth. And that is where, at that age, you often see when you read biographies, um, that things happened or that people died. I think Raphael died at that age and Mozart, I'm not sure, but 
often when you work in psychotherapy, you will find that in that time, there is a time of either you go with a conformity or you go through this moment of being absolutely alone. But of course, you are not alone. So that was one. I've had also the, the going to Africa. And I must say that Elizabeth was incredibly helpful with that because we had been together for seven years and, and went there for four years, four and a half years. And she came once a year for about six weeks. For my children, it must have been very hard. And my ex-wife. And I feel that still in a feeling of a great guilt in a way that I carry, but yet I had to do it. And so when I had gone at 48 with my tent and backpack through Africa, and that was because Africa had always behind in my mind to go there. And so I took three or four months out of the practice. And then I took a flight into Harare and in Zimbabwe and out in Cape Town, where a friend of mine lived who had started a handicapped village like Hohepa. That was all I knew. And so the coming in and coming and going out, I didn't know a soul in Africa. And I didn't know how I would do it and largely walking and, and hitchhiking through Southern Africa. And I had so many deja vus of things that I knew they were right. Then I came back and I went to VSA, Volunteer Services Abroad in Wellington. And I said, how? I have this feeling that it is stronger and stronger that I actually need to go there. This is not a youth dream. This was really far more than that. This was really destiny. And this young doctor, he said to me, well, you must write to Dr. Ashwanden in Matibi. Now, the Dr. Ashwanden is a Swiss surgeon who lived somewhere in the middle of Africa. Matibi was probably a little village of about 10 huts. And I said, I'll do that because I dreamt that about three weeks ago, uh, these names out of nowhere. And I did that. And then finally, indeed, I came there. And when I arrived there, I recognized it. I knew if I open this door, I come in that room and it looks like this and this. So it only comes at that time where your guardian angel or the, the spiritual world holds its breath. What is he going to do? And that is hard. And there's always a price to pay for that. But somehow you need to be true to yourself. But most of all, to thine own self be true. And I am a bit of a loner in one aspect, a sociable loner probably. It sounds like the thing that helped you through and actually continues to help you through is this sense of truthfulness, of following your truth, of integrity, as you said, to thine own self be true, that this isn't a kind of, oh, I'll put a bit of incense on and I'll do my yoga positions and everything will be okay. This is a much more kind of deep sense of how do I get through difficult times? I get through the difficult times by really listening to what is the right and true thing for me to do. Have I, have I caught that? accurately 
Yes, I think the one thing that is probably as important in that is the feeling of gratitude. So I try to every hour say simply thank you. So that's one thing. But with that very nice how you say that and trying to be true, but of course I have a big backpack of what I have done wrong and that I wish I had not done. And I must say, especially trying to to find it with my children, because we live in, in such completely different lives. Yeah, so I got five children, and they are all five of them parents. They're all married, and they're actually really good people, um, and I love them. I always wish that I would be closer to them, and yet that doesn't happen. So what, what happened is that the when you listen to what we've just been saying, it sounds almost like what an egotistical man who only thinks about himself. Yet they are continuously in my thoughts, but it is almost like I haven't got the right key for that lock and that my ex-wife is sort of a born mother and grandmother and she has that lock, but it is also the lives that they lead is, of course, completely different from mine. And that is a source of sadness. It's a sort of source of grief. And we need to see what will happen to that in later life. And also about this whole COVID thing, the same. I mean, I'm, I'm there, the only one. And yeah, you live with that. And that is important. I really appreciate your honesty around that. And I certainly resonate with what you describe as that backpack of failures. I think we either delude ourselves that we don't have that backpack yeah. or we face it. And it's not comfortable sometimes because we have this capacity to let people down. I'm picking up from you a courage and a, a sadness and a, you know, if not regret, then a recognition of reality and, and of who we are. Does any of that reflect? Oh, absolutely. And of course, what Jung calls the shadow and Steiner calls the double. And Steiner goes a bit further. He says that unredeemed part of ourselves from our past lives that will manifest itself for us to really look at it, to put light onto it, and in a way to redeem it with that. Um, to become aware of of that is very important. And I remember after having seen Schindler's List, which actually was very interesting to see, because this is this man who befriends all these high German guys, etc., and this does the good things as well. So the whole idea of good and bad or right and wrong, and you mentioned also to do the right thing, I don't think, I think actually that the time is past for us to do the right thing. The right thing is a societal concept. It is what is good. Um, I was very fortunate to travel with the Dalai Lama when he was in New Zealand. I was his doctor in 95, although he's so healthy, there was no need. But, and he talks about what is goodness. That is really what counts. 
And so when I saw Schindler's List, I had always thought, look, I'm I'm actually quite a good person, and I'm, you know, I can't do any of these atrocities. Then I saw that movie, and I thought, actually, I can kill. I'm not even sure whether I cannot even torture. When you saw these soldiers throwing up a baby and then shooting it, there is still a part in me that has that sense of this is so wrong, you know, that that I could do very wrong, as if doing wrong with wrong would make it right. And that was also interesting. I don't know if you've read that little booklet, uh, short book, uh, Ordinary Man, or Just Ordinary Man. There was a reserve battalion of police reserve battalion in Germany. And these were, what, 40, 50 people? And they were trained in Germany. And they were sent to what is now Ukraine. And they actually got themselves into becoming such incredible subhuman beings who did all the atrocities there. And like in Schindler's List, you know, so they probably would dangle their little child on their laps, etc. So this compartmentalization that we have in our soul, there's more than dualistic possibility. And I think we need to always be aware of that. And then we can, with gratitude, really see there is always light. There is always the possibility for redemption. We are unique. And... That uniqueness is into every particle of our being and in every cell with its own memory of all that has happened in this life and possibly even earlier lives, in the cellular memory, in our own proteins. When we eat something, we dissolve that, whatever we eat, first the glucose in the mouth, then the proteins in the stomach, and then the hardest part, the fats in the in the bile, in the in the small bowel, meaning that we undo the outside world of its own astrality, of its own influence, in order for it to make it ourselves and to reassemble sometimes the same proteins but with our etheric bodies, with our astrality. And I find the interesting thing that the point where that whole process of outside nutrition is coming in and comes to that final point, which I compare with dead tie between high and low tide, that point, that infinitely small moment, you know where that happens? That happens in the pancreas. And if you look at the Greek word, pan is all, kreas is meat, meaty substance. So there where we are all meat, and meaning we are fully physically the possibility of incarnating sits there. And it's interesting that's, of course, also where insulin is made, having very much to do with our sense of, of self a sense of how do we stand in the world. And all of this is via our immune system. The stronger I can become, also in my own nutrition, 
the better I can actually stand in this world and not be overcome by it. And the problem that we see is with this incredible increase in allergies or oversensitivities to outer substances, the task of that actually lies to strengthen ourselves. So I can choose what I can let in and what I say, no, I won't. Uh, I have a choice in that. And that choice has to do with consciousness, with awareness. You know, I was, as a young child, I had asthma. And that's interesting. If you look at asthma, what, what is that? So you have bronchitis and you have asthma. Bronchitis is a problem with the breathing in. Asthma is a difficulty with breathing out. So it's an overinflation. So if you listen to a child who's got asthma, when it is a bronchitis, it is... If you listen to a child with asthma, it's... And that is exactly the same, letting the world come right into and not having the difficulty to push back and say no. And I always feel that that same, and it's often together with allergies, the same sense of oversensitivity physically is also in the soul life. And I always felt as a GP that the teachers and employers love people with asthma because they go to any length to do the right thing, but they have the difficulty to saying no. And I, I was very fortunate because I had a mother who was actually quite phlegmatic. She had had her own difficulties in life, but a wonderful, loving woman. And when I was like that, she would take me on her lap. And by her being, I would simply, I would relax into my breathing. And how different that is now when you put a child, put an inhaler on. Is it yellow? Is it red? Where do I sit? Do I now need to give steroids? So this whole world that has become so insecure. And now you're speaking my language, or you have been all the way through, but particularly you're talking the language of touch. You're talking the language of physiological regulation, but also the emotional the the sense of the attending to the emotion of you as a young child with the asthma being held by your mother and that causing everything to relax and the proper form of musculature in the lungs and the alveoli to just relax and do their job because something has been soothed whatever it is it's been soothed by another human being and i I do go on about this a fair amount. I'm sure the listeners are getting quite bored of me. But the idea of giving and receiving touch to each other in a mm -hmm. safe and profound way, not a quick rub on the shoulder or a quick handshake or a frantic one-second hug, but more the idea that we can learn how to give each other touch that is essentially soothing not just to the nervous system, but to the soul. And I do think that what you've said about this, Rene, is so interesting because you talked about the pancreas and you talked about insulin and you talked about the insulin being connected with the sense of self. And hasn't this been under attack over, well, I think 
several hundred years but I don't even begin to think when it all started. I think it was possibly <laughs> right back at the time of the Sumerians. But I think this, certainly in the last 100, 150 years, that the idea of us being profoundly divine or spiritual beings has been so attacked, you know, in education, in universities, in trainings, it's all got to be scientific reality. And it's like, the attack on our uniqueness has been going on a long time. And isn't it interesting how many people are turning up with diabetes these days and sugar problems as a result of this relentless attack on the, the sense of the self and what makes us human? And of course, what makes us human is essentially we are capable of such spiritual growth and fulfillment and awareness. Yeah, and so we take the manifestation for the reality. If you look at the old Indian epoch, they realized that whatever we can perceive is Maya. And Plato said actually the same still. It's only the what we don't perceive is the reality. And we have completely changed over to that extent that if we can't perceive it with our senses, it is it is not a reality. We even go to a much further sense that if I can't find a report about it, or if I can't find a certificate, it is not even there. You know, if now the certificate counts for the reality. So if I am back in my car on a disabled car park, you see, and I get out of the car and I walk out there happily, Nobody is going to touch me because I have my cart disabled. So I'm allowed to do that. If I come out of the car and the parking warden says, you're not allowed to park here, you haven't got a disabled cart. And that is a parody, but that is actually with everything. I can't believe it unless there is proof. And what do I call proof? And then you come to the whole idea of, the belief in science rather than science. Um, can I just say to the listeners, René, that what they missed was this beautiful demonstration of René as he got out of his chair and he sort of walked around his room and he mimed parking his car with the disabled sticker on and then just just walking out hale and healthy with nothing wrong. And that's all okay because the sticker is there. And then he did this. I wish I wish they could have seen this. But he then he then got out of the disabled car park, but he didn't have a sticker on his car. And he's walking with his back bent and his hand on his back and he's hobbling along. And still the traffic warden will say, no, you don't have the certificate, the sticker that says you're disabled. Even though I can see it with my bloody eyes, <laughs> I'm still going to give you a for parking in the disabled spot. I just wanted to clarify that. Isn't that interesting that some cultures say what we don't see is the reality? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And also well, about essential touch that you meant. We need to touch one another, emotionally, physically, whatever. And of course there is an untoward touch, and I, I don't mean any of that. But the African people... I mean, in the Shona culture, they talk about the white people who don't touch because it is impossible for an African person to meet another person, see another person, to actually not touch, to not shake a hand or whatever. Because that makes us human. 
In fact, every end that we see touching the other end when they when they walk on their end paths, any every animal does it. Well, you've certainly touched me, Rene, in this conversation that we've had, and I suspect many listeners will feel touched by your gentleness, by your kindness, and by your thoughtfulness and deep thinking and your profound wisdom that you share with us. So it's a real privilege to have spent this hour with you, Rene. And I want to just say thank you so much for sitting in the psychotherapist chair. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Well, the first thing I want to reflect on was he couldn't resist sharing his great knowledge and experience. And actually, there were some real gems in what he said. And I just want to go over those again and perhaps even add a couple more of my own. But his gems were just amazing and so true. One of the things he talked about was our psychological need and our emotional need and indeed our physical need for regularity and rhythm in our lives. Now, this isn't a very popular idea. We live in a culture where we feel we have to do as much as possible and be as successful as possible. Well, success really isn't success when you break yourself and you break down and you have to take months of illness. Many of us have tried that and learned that very tough lesson that we need to find a rhythm. And one person's rhythm may be another person's disrhythm. In previous sessions, I've talked about the importance of sleep. And I would say right at the heart of that is that recovery time in every 24-hour period where we actually get to rest and recuperate. So look for rhythm. Yes, you might be the old boar who goes to bed early, but if it keeps you functioning and it keeps you in a buoyant state of resilience, then that's a gift to everyone around you. Rene also talked about giving yourself feeding, stimulus, nourishment, if you like. And he didn't just mean food, although he has a great understanding of nourishment in in the biological sense and its spiritual element. But he talked, for example, of purchasing a coffee table book on art and just placing it in your living room and just stopping and looking, even for a few seconds, at some beautiful art. I am less of a visual person and just stopping for a moment in the day and listening to some beautiful music. Indeed, we heard Sue Hoskin talk about that in her session, how she would just put on music and dance or do some yoga to music. So take yourself out of yourself. Give yourself a break from yourself. (laughs) Another technique that Rene said is go out and just look at the stars. And I think he really meant just wonder at the stars, wonder at their beauty. Ask ourselves the big question, who am I? Why am I here? And oh my God, how amazing is creation. And then Rene also suggested that we might try and switch off the computer and sit and be still. And I would add to that to breathe and to follow the flow of your breathing and let your body have space to find and explore ways to breathe. There's probably a whole book 
right there in how to manage stress and trauma. So I'm just going to add a couple more techniques. I think I've already mentioned that finding someone who you trust, someone who you can talk to without censorship, someone who you feel safe with, and making a weekly coffee date with them, a coffee catch-up, and allow a full hour, having someone to whom you can talk openly about all the things that are going on for you. That can be a lifesaver, actually. And I think I've mentioned elsewhere that I have met clients who have reported to me that they've gone through periods of their life where if they had not had that friend to meet up for each week, they would probably not be here now. So never underestimate the power of coffee. (laughs) And in our very first session, I think that's when I talked about this, when we had Leanne's coffee cart. And if you haven't heard that one, that's certainly worth a listen, that episode. The other thing I want to say is that in my conversation with Rene, we often talked about the role of feet. And I know this is a bit left of field, but the feet are absolutely remarkable. They contain in the soles of our feet. I mean, just look at the word soul, the soles of our feet. I mean, who would give a name to the foot of soul? I know it's spelt differently, but just listen to it, the soles of our feet. And in my work as a body worker and massage therapist, uh, I was working with many, many thousands of massage therapists, all of whom were dealing with clients and the stresses that that can bring. And it didn't take me long to realize that they needed something really helpful to look after themselves in that. So I developed this method where you simply stand barefooted on the grass. And by the way, this could be done staring at the stars. It could be done just taking in a view in the park. You just Feel your feet on the ground and stand with your feet slightly further apart. So shoulder length apart and bend the knees a little bit. Give yourself a little bounce. And then just lean over onto one foot slightly and feel the increase of pressure, the physical pressure on the sole of your foot. And then slowly lean across and feel the transition of the pressure from the sole of one foot onto the sole of the foot you're leaning into. And just spend a minute or two breathing and focusing your attention on the soles of your feet, feeling the pressure change. And I'm not gonna go into a big bunch of theory, but there are so many energy centers in the soles of your feet. As you feel the pressure going over, some of you may even feel the energetic connection that you're making with different parts of your feet. It's almost like you're giving the soles of your feet a massage through the ground. And you're just using a gentle moving of your hips from one side to the other very slowly. And a mental focus on the pressure changes on the soles of your feet and your breathing. And if you just do that for a minute, you'll literally take yourself out of the stress because you're filling your mind, not with the stress, you're literally filling the mind with your breath, your movement, and the sensations in your feet. And if you just do that, 
It's like a refreshment, a break from being yourself. <laughs> and in fact, it's a wonderful break because you are actually tuning in to a far deeper part of yourself than all our anxieties and stress come from. So I hope that's useful to you. The other reflection I have from René's talk is how often he would refer to our sense of self. And what was so remarkable about his interview and his life, actually, is the profoundly spiritual view he has come to of all the kind of medical systems in our body or the systems that medicine attends to, the lungs and the breath, our digestion and nutrition, our immune system. But this isn't just any old doctor. This is a doctor who has traveled inwardly in his life's journey and who has sought to access that S of PEMS that I mentioned in a previous talk, the spiritual part of PEMS. If you don't know what PEMS is, the P stands for physical, the E stands for energy, the second E stands for emotions, the M stands for our mental state or our mind, our thoughts, and the S for spiritual, PEMS. And in particular, René talked about this direct link between our breath, also our digestion and nutrition, our immunity, and our sense of self. And he related this directly to our ability to stand up for our truth and sometimes to say no. And you heard René say no. He said, this is a hill I will die on when it came to compromising his spiritual and his professional integrity. I imagine many doctors and many psychiatrists listening to René will have no option but to hang their heads in shame. And so they should. But I want to say something about this ability to say no. And in fact, I also share a medical insight into how we say no. And I'm looking at the biology of the human cell. Because you see, whether it's at a cellular level, or it's at a bodily level, or it's at a social, community, personal level, life actually consists of giving out and receiving in. And we need both. And the giving out is directly linked to our ability to push away. The emotion of anger is there for that one sole purpose, to push people away when they invade our personal or emotional boundaries. And in the last two years, we've seen the most violent an invasive attack on people's very physical boundaries. So just as the arms can be used to push another person away, they can also be used to reach out open-palmed to the side of our bodies, inviting someone in to the hug, the handshake. And how often is that the first step, particularly amongst men I've noticed here in New Zealand, because men are pretty good around their boundaries, I have to say, sometimes overly boundaried. But first the arm goes out. Ah, 
they respect that boundary. Then the shoulders come in, and then it may even progress to a full-on man hug. So we have an energetic boundary with the arms outstretched. And then we have a physical boundary of our skin. And here's where immunity comes in, because the only reason for an injection is to bypass human immunity. All the array of defensive weapons in the throats, in the nose, in the lungs, we have a veritable army of defenders protecting us from invasion by harmful pathogens. But let us come to the cellular level. And it is with the cell that we can have a very clear understanding of the value of standing up for our boundaries, standing up for our identity, and sometimes saying no. So if you think of a cell membrane, inside the cell is a whole bunch of stuff going on. So the cell has to have a way, an open doorway to release stuff. And we also need material to come in. We need nutrition. So just as the human body needs to be able to eat and take food in, it also needs to be able to pass waste out. And they can't do that if their membrane is solid. So we have what's called a semi-permeable membrane in cellular biology. And I began to see that all the clients I was working with either had like a personal membrane that was too hard and solid, often with the fellas, not letting anyone in. I wonder if there's a few women that can relate to that last sentence. But there are also personalities that are too open and they let too many people in. And the trouble with the overprotected, stereotypical male is that, yes, they're safe because they're not being invaded, but they're also starving themselves. And if you starve a cell, it withers and dies. If a cell can't allow in, it dies. And on the other side, I found that some clients were so open that they would let everyone in, and they lost all sense of their self. They didn't know the difference between who they were and who the last person they, as it were, let in. And that doesn't mean physical letting in. It can just be emotionally totally influenced by other people, never really having an opinion of their own. So psychologically, I began to realize that for some of my clients, we needed to help them open up those boundaries and let them know it's safe to choose and let in occasionally, just now and then, to allow ourselves to absorb, to receive. And if you think about the arms reaching out for the hug and then drawing someone in, or or if you like, even more accurate, the palms going forward, but the palms are facing up to the heavens in a gesture, an archetypal gesture of being willing to receive, to receive another. And that means opening up the boundary. And some of us are overly closed, and we need to think about that. And we need to ask ourselves, can I say yes? I invite you in. But I think Rene was referring to the other time, which is where we don't know who we are. That can be made very possible by stress and trauma, and in particular by isolation. We disintegrate if we isolate. We don't get any idea of where we stop and others start. 
And as a massage therapist and body worker, that was the first thing I had to learn. Where did I stop? And where did my clients start? And yes, there's a physical side to that. But sometimes with the touch, there was a kind of emerging or an invitation to merge, which resulted in me not knowing who I was. And there was a period when I was working as a body worker where I was too open. Quite a rare state for a lot of men. And I, I didn't know who I was at the end of a day's working. I became very confused about myself. And then as a result of therapy, psychotherapy, I began to understand that I can be connected, but I can also be separate, that my membrane had to decide. And sometimes I would close my membrane, literally, when I was massaging someone. And I learned this from my psychotherapist. And, and he just said to me, why don't you just remember a really good day with your child, with your own child? And I had young children then. And in the middle of a, of a massage, I would just close my boundary and just smile to myself and remember my own life was separate from that person's and all their issues and all their problems and all that was going on. And you know what? When I did that, I was able to help them more because I had that boundary. In other words, I closed the door even for a few seconds just to remind myself that I am empowered and I have the freedom to, as it were, protect myself or not, to open myself or not. And so when we think about the whole of life as either, as it were, making a more permeable membrane, let more in, or a stronger membrane to keep people out so we can know who we are. So instead of letting people in all the time, as I had to learn, finding ways to close the door. Now, the word that is used for that is one of the smallest words in the English language, but potentially one of the biggest and hardest words to understand. And that's the word no. The word no. And there's a lot of negative connotations around the word no. But for me, our ability to say no is absolutely essential before we can ever say yes. I cannot believe another person's yes if I have not experienced them saying no. I need to know, and that's a different no, K-N-O-W, I need to know that they can say no. Otherwise, I don't trust their yes, and I don't believe their yes. And then if you constantly say yes and you never say no, you end up feeling resentful. And if you feel resentful, you start taking it out on the people you've said yes to. And they go, hold on a sec, I thought you agreed to this. <laughs> There's a lot of blokes can relate to this, getting confused, because a lot of women are brought up never to say no, culturally. But here in New Zealand, we have a major disease. And that disease is a fear of saying no because we fear offending someone. So you have to find a way to say no that makes it clear to the other person. This is not offensive. This is about what you are and are not able to do and willing to do. So I invite you to think about whether your membrane is sufficiently strong to keep out that which you don't want. And it doesn't mean to say you're keeping that person out. It might be that you're keeping out the invasion on the rhythm and regularity of your life that saying yes would create. 
So you never have the space and the time to build a rhythm to your own life. So part of building the rhythm that Rene talks about, I would suggest, is also developing your ability to say no. No often means I'm giving myself space and time for healing and I'm going to stay well. Now, a sick person is no use to anyone else. So no becomes a way of looking after the people around you. When you say, I can't do that, you are ensuring that you'll be around tomorrow as their buddy. And it could be that extreme, by the way. When you say no, what you could be saying is, it's really important for us to have clear boundaries between us. And that can be incredibly protective of the other person. Not only do you model to them that it's okay to have boundaries, but you also enable yourself to be with them in a way that is effective without having to say yes to everything. Any parent of children knows what I'm talking about. We all want to say yes to our children, but we have to say no so they learn the boundaries of society and they can function easily and with pleasure in human society. Saying yes to children is not a sign of love. It's a sign of fear. And you pass on that fear to your children. Children love it when their parents say no. Just don't try asking them about it. <laughs> of course they love it. That means they know where they are. They know where the boundary is. And once you make that boundary with children, do not change it. I was really poor at that one. I do not talk from a place of great height here. I talk from a place of great failing. And above all else, when you say no, what you're really saying is, I have an innate responsibility to be myself. I can only be myself. Everybody else is taken. And every time you say no, you reinforce this idea that whilst we are communal creatures and we are together and we need each other, we are also born with this divine permission to be free, to be ourselves. And for some of us, that is proof of a divine and loving God that we can always say no. Now, as I promised, I'm also going to review now some of the other tools that have come up in case you've missed them, and so you can go find them. So I've already mentioned the first episode with Leanne, her of the coffee cart. And in the lessons and tools, we talked about creativity as a way out of stress and trauma. And we talked about the need for us all to find meaning. And it was an encouragement to keep questing for your meaning if you don't know what it is already. Have your journey. We're all on a journey. So that was in the first episode. In the second episode, after Craig's interview, he of the wonky donkey fame, talked a lot about sleep and dreams and the importance of the unconscious. The importance of also allowing ourselves, again, you know, the same theme is coming up again and again, allowing ourselves to be different, a bit wonky. Well, it needed the wonky donkey man, didn't it, to give us permission 
to let ourselves be just a bit wonky. And at the end of that, the example of Craig's life and Leanne's and everyone here, actually, that trauma does not define us. It's the meaning that we make. It's what we learn from trauma that defines us. And in each of these episodes, you're going to hear remarkable stories of how trauma defined each person. In the previous episode with Sue Hoskin, we talked about the importance of earth, land, and human community working the land together. And I also shared the PEAMS technique of one of my students, where we check in with ourselves on a regular basis, two or three times a day if necessary, and do a quick scorecard on each of our PEAMS. How am I doing physically, energetically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually? And then you know what? Adjusting your day. If that little exercise has caused you to think, I need more or less of something, adjust your day. So those are my reflections. And isn't it interesting how they all seem to be circulating around this idea of our identity, of the self, of who we are, but not just in a kind of narcissistic and egocentric kind of way, but in a way that enables us to recognize that other element of being human, which is our need for each other. If we don't know who we are, then how can we be with others? Throughout this show, I'm hoping that you will take encouragement to do the inner work, to go inside yourself, to journal, to take space and look at the stars, to have a coffee catch-up. Doing the inner work, understanding yourself so you can be with others and be of help to others. Because trust me, whatever you discover about yourself, in some weird and wonderful way, will help you help others even more. This is Real People in the Psychotherapist Chair with Jerry Pives on RCR, Reality Check Radio.